Through its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. New England is home to some of the country's most esteemed higher education institutions, including universities in the Ivy League. In fact, all but one of the Ivies were founded during New England's colonial times, with Harvard University often referred to as the oldest institution of higher learning in the United States. A lengthy relationship with academic excellence and a history of pioneering high educational standards permeates the culture of modern New England, which is home to over 230 colleges and universities and over a million students. But as centers of innovation and with large student bodies, colleges and universities generate substantial greenhouse gases and waste. In 2005, higher education produced 121 million metric tons of carbon dioxide, representing 2% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions that year. University research laboratories also bring unique sustainability challenges, producing chemical waste and requiring frequent use of disposable plastics. But even as contributors to climate change, universities can be settings of transformative thinking and positive change, including related to how we think about and act on climate and environmental challenges. University sustainability departments around the world ranging from the University of California system to the University of Manchester in England to the University of British Columbia in Canada and many more, uh, they've all developed goals to make their campuses more sustainable. Over 600 colleges and universities in the United States have joined the American College and University President's Climate Commitment, which requires, for example, internal reviews of their emissions. And higher education also provides important venues for climate research and educational programs that examine complex aspects of climate change and its intersections with society. So in this discussion, we will hear from two women working to further the accessibility, customization, and intersectional nuance in the study of sustainability and science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. So please join me in welcoming our panelists, Julianne Emmons-Allison, Associate Professor within the University of California Riverside Sustainability Studies Program, and Jenny Frank, Head of Educator Programming and Engagement at Lab Exchange. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. Really excited for our conversation. And I'm going to start uh, with Julianne. Thank you for being here. And could you get us started by overviewing the UC Riverside Sustainability Studies Program? Hello, uh, thank you for having me and welcome everyone who is here with us today. Um, the sustainability studies program on our campus uh, is sort of a partner to the environmental study, the environmental sciences program over in our College of Natural and Agricultural Sciences. And um, we launched in 2015. Um, and the idea was to build a sustainability program that incorporated sort of politics and society, economics, and environmental um, uh, concerns 
to provide a strong basis in scientific literacy. So we're not teaching science, but the students are taking more, like twice as much science as they would in any other letters and uh, sciences um, major. And um, sort of, you know, mainstream gender concerns from the outside to recognize the sustainability and environmental issues are gendered, whether you put that out front or not. And so that had a lot to do with the genesis of the program. Um, within a gender and sexuality studies department. Thank you so much, Julianne. And Jenny, thank you for being here as well. Could you briefly introduce us to Lab Exchange? Yes, thank you. Good afternoon. I um uh, I just wanted to first say that I am so honored with um, having this opportunity to to be here today um, and introduce you to what I believe is an innovative platform that is revolutionizing really the the way that we are approaching education and collaboration in the field of science education. So Lab Exchange is a dynamic and interactive platform developed by Harvard University with the support from Amgen Foundation. Our aim is to provide free access to high quality science resources. Uh, we want to break down barriers and we want to empower learners to be leaders of their own curiosity and and be able to explore and understand the natural world around them. One of the key challenges that we've discovered um, in science education is that around the world, we hear it constantly from educators and learners alike, and that's just limited access to really high quality learning experiences, specifically high quality laboratory experiences, and um, that you definitely find in smaller institutions as well as underprivileged communities. So at Lab Exchange, we want to bridge this gap by bringing this laboratory experience, these interactive and engaging experiences to an online ecosystem and just remove that physical location or institutional barrier. What makes Lab Exchange special, in my opinion, um, is that we have a rich library of interactive content that spans a very wide range of scientific and STEM-based disciplines. Uh, we are not a competitor um, in the ed tech market. We're actually a collaborator. So what we do is we reach out to other innovative science organizations who are creating and producing really high quality science content. And we work together to kind of create this one stop shop for teachers and educators. Um, I mean, students alike. Um, and so that means that, you know, Anyone can come to our space, our virtual platform, and access these really high quality virtual lab experiences, interactive simulations. Um, we've got real world case studies, all in this hopes that we are providing a new kind of engaging learning experience, but in a virtual ecosystem. So I think that Lab Exchange is really not just um, an educational platform, but we're hopeful um, that it can start to open a dialogue um, and become part of that process as a catalyst of change in science education. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to really be a part of that conversation is what does science education, what does access for all really look like? Um, sure. Today, tomorrow, and, and the future. 
Thank you so much, Jenny, for the introduction and, and hopefully get into some more details about what, what the content actually looks like um, in just a few minutes. But Julianne, I want to jump into some questions and I want to start with you. You know, you alluded to this in your introduction, the fact that this is a sustainability studies program launched within a gender and sexuality studies department. Um, that might sound a little non-intuitive. To, to some people in our audience. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the gender dimensions of climate change, environment, and sustainability that are really central, perhaps, to the courses offered as part of your program. Um, so, right. Um, the gendering is, is sort of the basis of sort of many problems, not just within the environment. It's a very primary identification that we have, a major division within our societies and culture. So there's sort of no way of escaping that. Um, in our courses, and remember our courses are gonna range, you know, from things that are quite theoretical all the way to things that maybe are more um, substance-based case studies and, and those sorts of things. Um, so we're, the students are presented both with sort of the idea as gender being one of those things that um, is a source of advantage and power within society. So it really, you, you learn about maybe on the ground, you know, sort of men and women, but it's really about the power dimensions. And so that can carry to all sorts of different kinds of social uh, uh, divisions within society, right? So it's kind of a theoretically kind of a jumping off point. And then more substantively, you know, you look at some of those cultural expressions. So, you know, what is the work of women or the work of men or, the, you know, the work of people who are non-binary within, uh, within a society? Um, and then what kinds of behaviors, what kinds of power distributions um, are manifest? And so in real life, you get situations, you know, like as much has been made about the, uh, the uh, Bangladeshi floods, the flooding that happened there and how many female lives were lost because, you know, the women were at home. They were um, often not as well informed. The houses aren't made very well. They don't know how to swim. Um, if they did swim, if they did get out in the water, they're, you know, burdened with a lot of clothing. Um, they may have had to leave children or think about children. So all of those sorts of things. But we also look at, like, the situation of men um, in the outback of Australia during the long drought and the fires there, where their kind of culture of protecting the family and the home meant that it was the men who lost their lives. It was the men who stayed behind you know, and took care of the, the homes and sometimes, you know, lost not just their livelihoods, but also their lives, lost connections with family because the families were split and sometimes the women and children would go and live in safer places, maybe without, you know, less drought or maybe within cities where there were more resources or whatever the case may be. And it doesn't mean that Bangladeshi men didn't also die. And it doesn't mean that there weren't women who stayed, you know, on the ranches in Australia. It's just to kind of give you that that broad swath that it's not just about women, it's about how gender is manifest in, um, uh, you know, in uh, societies. And then kind of another, and that's like when you think about like the impacts, but another way of thinking about this gendering is just in the everyday things that we do. And in many societies around the world, caregiving, um, the responsibilities for home, whether you're thinking in a, um, a, uh, a less income rich space where you're talking about women sort of at home around a hearth sort of thing, or you're thinking in a modern society, Scandinavia, for instance, where women are you know, quite active out in the world, but they may also still be paying all the bills. 
they may still be carting around all the children or at least managing the rides and all of that. And so you do see women behaving in many cases in a more what we call environmentally conscious way. So when you do surveys in major industrialized space, you're gonna find it's women who are consciously turning off lights when they leave rooms, that are thinking about public transportation and that sort of thing, but in less advantaged places, you're thinking about the women who are breathing in the open flame, you know, kind of uh, stoves and they're carrying the wood. And so they're, they're also making, you know, kind of those sorts of decisions and maybe economizing, maybe championing different kinds of solutions to problems than the men are because of where they are in society, right? So it's something that depending on where you're looking, how the culture is put together, the roles that the women play, how traditional they are, what many choices they have, are they involved in the decision-making um, processes? And so you see it in many ways from the typical to the very atypical. Thank you so much. That's that's really helpful context, I think, uh, for this bigger picture. And one of the reasons I was particularly excited about this panel is because I think we're able to show two sides of hopefully a very complementary picture here, where it requires the the holistic. Um, social sciences addition to the natural sciences that, that we see through through Julianne, your work, and then making sure that we still have the accessibility of the the type of natural sciences, environmental sciences type education that Jenny, I think we're talking about with lab exchange. And so Jenny, you did mention, I think, some examples of the types of content that are available on lab exchange as a platform. I wanted to dive into one of the aspects that I think is particularly unique. I'm a scientist by training. So when I heard about this, I was really fascinated. The simulations element of your, of your content and your work. And I was wondering if you could you know, give us a taste of or an explanation, like what sorts of simulations are currently available on lab exchange and how do simulations like these improve access to lab science skills that otherwise students might not be able to have, you know, the experience with? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the things that makes lab exchange very unique is our definition of a simulation. So I think Traditionally, when um, people think about ed tech and they think about simulations online, uh, you're probably imagining something where you might have um, an interactive with some variables that you are, you know, changing and, and seeing the cause and effect relationship. But at Lab Exchange, we are obviously partnered with the Amgen Foundation, and Amgen is a pharmaceutical organization company. Uh, so you can see that resonated across um, our simulations, which, like you said, are more the virtual lab. So when a, a user goes to our platform and accesses one of those simulations, uh, one, the one that was kind of our claim to fame was the gel electrophoresis. Uh, so it's a, it's a very common biotechnology technique. Um, it's really important, you know, to build student awareness around biotechnology. Uh, it is probably one of the largest growing and one of the most promising careers uh, that we probably will face a shortage of, you know, very soon, if not already now. So the gel electrophoresis lab, when a user goes on, they're actually in a virtual laboratory. And I think that's what makes that a little, that experience more unique 
But that's also why we say it's a hands-on experience in a virtual environment. Students are picking up the micro pipettes and you know moving around the gel electrophoresis unit just like they would in their own laboratory. Um, and, and they're conducting a real life experiment. They're doing science. And that's what we're always trying, that's, that's what we believe everyone has access to. So when we talk about limited resources or that space in place or giving access to anyone everywhere, we want to not only give them access to this really great content, we have 22,000 different resources as of today, and I'm sure that right now it probably just turned to 23,000 because it, it never fails. But the unique things like these virtual labs are just so much more of an in-depth experience. And, and that's what we think everybody should have access to, is to be able to do science no matter what circumstances you have. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Jenny. Really helpful and and I can imagine how empowering having that sort of a tool can can be, um, especially just thinking back to our opening remarks speaker today, the idea that why can't I do it, be able to do anything, you know, as a as a young girl or as a person in a remote location. Um, I think that's really exciting. So thank you. And Julian, I wanted to come back to you now and, and ask, you know, I, I'm really enjoying this vibe of jumping back and forth <laughs> between types of scientific study. Um, it's clearly very important when we're thinking about climate, environment, and sustainability to examine these topics from perspectives that include but go beyond the natural sciences. I think you've clearly made the case for that, especially in your previous answer. Why is community-based research critical to advancing our understanding of sustainability, and how is that a, a part of your sustainability studies program? So um, I guess there's sort of two, two sort of veins here. Um, I've been doing my own research on issues related to the environment and sustainability for a really long time, a lot around energy and air quality issue. And in my, where I live, it's a lot about logistics and, and warehousing is where that's kind of manifest. And um, most of the issues that I deal with, of course, we get more fine tuned about it, but the science was settled many decades ago. Right? So, if it's just about the sciences, like, what do we do about climate change? Well, we reduce CO2 or, <laughs> I mean, that that score has been, been, been handled. And of course, there's a role for different kinds of technologies going forward, but the real impediments to why we're not getting anywhere are social, they're political, they're in people's belief systems, there's they're the ways that they behave, the kinds of things they like to do, their openness to change, you know, a lot of those issues. And that's all the purview of the social sciences and even the arts really, in terms of when you get into kind of, you know, dig digital arts and media, you know, or, you know, the humanities in terms of saving um, materials, archiving what's happening, um, all of those sorts of things happen largely informed by science but outside of the methodologies and approaches that are most um, used most, um, you know, uh, in our scientific spaces. So um, it's really important that we incorporate both. Uh, and, and one of the ways that um, that happens or you move forward is you have to get the people who are on the ground to buy into whatever's next, whatever the, the new set of possibilities what are the choices are, whatever the different policies that they're choosing over, whatever the case may be. So that takes understanding of the science and how it is, how it is localized, how is it experienced by the people on the ground, 
And it takes an understanding of where those people are situated, what kinds of advantages and disadvantages they have, what sort of access to power do they have, what are their capacities for articulating or acting on whatever kind of advantage that they may have, um, how do they come to know what they know, how can their minds be changed, and perhaps the, the, the biggest piece of some of this is a great deal of humility in terms of like elite policymakers and elite scientists, because in most cases, um, people don't always choose what a scientist or even, you know, an economist might pin down as the best thing to do. But if you want to move forward, you need them to, to do the things that they're going to do. And so just to give you an example, um, uh, with some colleagues, I worked on a project about walkability. So the idea was to make a suburban neighborhood more walkable. And in that both improved kind of social um, relationships, but um, more importantly, in terms of something that the city was marking would be to demonstrate that they became more healthy. Because if you're walking more, you're moving, changing more of your trips from, um, you know, some kind of uh, motorized movement to active transportation of some form, um, you would see health improvements, right? Um, without even going to the community, just looking at general plans, driving through it, experts can sit down and tell you what would make it more walkable. Like, here are the 10 top 10 things to do. And then maybe the economist would come in and say, but some of those are super, super expensive. So we're going to take them off the table. We're going to kind of cross, you know, economics and that, and they could just do it. But that doesn't mean that people are going to change their behavior. So, in this case, we went in and, you know, did some educational things, did walkabouts where you have people walk through and have them identify the things that are, are hazards for them. Um, you know, lights or step downs or curbs or absence of, of crosswalks or whatever it may, um, dogs barking, sure. whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you, you're kind of having them mark on a map what's happening. Um, you provide information about here's what we know about these things. Like, you know, you're really bothered about X and we have all these studies that say, if you do X, it doesn't make a difference. So what else would you consider? Sure. So this kind of conversation, and then we did a survey. So after a period of activities in the neighborhood, we did a survey and then, you know, we're able to kind of rank what folks thought needed to be done. And there were two that stand out. One was lighting. They said there's not enough light. Like we work all day, it's a working class neighborhood. We come home, we're not gonna go back out because there's not lighting. But if you'd gone to the city, they would say, but it is the adequate light. Like our expert tell us that this is the lights, the lights are all maintained, they have their light. The people are saying it's not enough light. Um, so can we get some new lights? And then the other one was the dogs. A lot of people did not wanna walk outside because they said too many dogs. Again, if you go to the city, they say, no, 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 like our dog, our stray dog population is minimal. Our problem is no different than, you know, anywhere else. There's no reason why this particular community should be bothered. Well, it turns out that the location of the animal shelter is just on the backside of the community. Ah. So, in fact, although the data say you don't have a problem, the experience of people living there, all the strays of the city running through their neighborhood, <laughs> towards the animal shelter. Sure. So what that does is it raises things that may not be what an expert would say are the first things. If you want people to walk, here's, here's what you do. It was raising the things that, that, that those things are on the list. You know, issues about safety and lights and dogs would be on any list. Right, right. But elevated those things to the top. And they were relatively low-hanging fruit in a way in terms of, as opposed to, to um, do, doing traffic calming, for instance, right, where you're going right. to narrow the streets or something really big and expensive. 
it's like, oh, perhaps we can do these few things and people's behavior will change. And some of these other things we know have to happen are super expensive. Can take time. Can we take time with those? Right. Okay. This, this is a great example. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a really great example. It's really illustrative and also leads me, I think, well to my next question for Jenny, because (laughs) there, you know, you mentioned Julianne, the, the importance of the social context, right. And, and the power that that holds and Jenny, I wanted to ask you, you know, lab exchange actually includes a series of narratives. So this is not what we think of when we think traditional science, right? And so there's this social element to this work here as well. Uh, narratives from scientists talking about their career paths. So why did lab exchange elect to include narratives like these as part of its resource library? Um, that's a great, a great segue and actually something that I am incredibly proud of. Um, I always kind of liken us to a collector of stories and, um, those stories, uh, are narratives. We have a, a very large collection of these stories and they're expert created content from renowned scientists, educators from all around the world. And these narrative stories, um, a lot of which are women um, stories, Uh, they're they're meant to help to provide this opportunity for role models, right? Women, um, marginalized communities, being being represented in sciences, but also telling stories of how maybe they've overcome challenges and what has helped them to succeed in in believing that they could do it and then actually succeeding and becoming renowned and um, change makers in their STEM careers. Uh, and we feel really strongly that, you know, if we're gonna think about transformative education, especially in that K-12 sphere, sphere that's the kind of thing that we need to start thinking about, right? In addition to academia, we need to also start to talk about, to build those conversations around possibilities like we've talked earlier in the segment. Um, But we also have to just share these stories so that people can see themselves and, and, and they can see themselves visually. They can see themselves, um, in background, in culture, in, 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 you know, experience and say, look at these people who are just like me and look at the successes and, oh, here's the road that they traveled to get there. Um, and I think that for me, that is just one of the things that makes Lab Exchange really unique. And it also kind of, you know, it, it expands on what we talk about as science content, right? Science content doesn't always have to be academia. The most important thing for us is that science content is inspiring and that when learners are engaged in that content, that their curiosity and their imagination is sparked, right? And that hope, hope and wonder and possibility. Um, And that's one of the ways that we vet that content. That's wonderful. And I, we are officially in our speed round here for this conversation, but I would like to hopefully get to one more quick question for each of you before we wrap up. Jenny, I'm going to revert back to you with a follow-up here. I think it's important to note that while your lab exchange platform has become pretty renowned for, like you said, the, the biotech adjacent simulations, et cetera, that is not all that you all 
do. Um, I was hoping you could just give us a taste of your plans for one of your newest projects focused on creating content about climate change. Yeah, absolutely. We are very fortunate. We just received a grant um, from uh, the Department of Defense, and the project is called Data Science Driven Science Education. Uh, and we have three goals. The one is to prepare high school students for careers involving data science. Again, we believe that that is a forward thinking uh, career. Number two is to build educator confidence, right, in teaching and leading data science exploration. And number three, which I think is very powerful, is the importance of creating data literate public. Uh, we believe really strongly that data science um, is an essential skill. It's a citizen skill, uh, but we recognize that educators need a lot of support. Um, they need a lot of resources in order to start to integrate that more um, effectively into the classroom, especially in that K-12 sphere. Got it. And Julianne, my last question for you before we do our wrap up question. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how many students have graduated from this amazing program and the types of careers that they have been prepared to explore post graduation? Um, so I was actually looking at the data not too long ago, and it's um, about a 200, maybe a few over that, um, you know, because things are still happening and the last of this data is not entirely up to date. But let's say around 200, which is about where we'd hope to be, you know, kind of by this time, we put the program together. So that's good. Um, we actually kind of exploded and so much so that the, uh, the program will be moving into a new department. Um, for, you know, sustainable and sustainability environment and health equity. So we brought together people, um, you know, on campus who were invested in environment and sustainability kind of directly. And then those also who were invest in health equity because a big piece of where you know our space where we are is in environmental justice so it's going to you know we're broadening the program so we're very very successful picked up some more folks have a, now a broader program that is um you know sort of unique within the in the uh not just in the space of of, of uh, universities but within the uc system um, where there are a number of environmental studies uh, programs and there are public health programs but not something like this, uh, which means that our students have gone out in the world and done all kinds of things, <laughs> but we imagine they're going to do more, but just, um, I would say that, you know, we have a chunk that go to into public policy, public administration programs, and then career there. That's very, very popular. Um, we have a few that go into graduate studies, which is, you know, the, probably commiserate with other undergraduate programs, both in the sciences and in the social sciences and humanities. So, it is a platform for people that want to go into more science-oriented careers. Um, we do have people to go into um, things like consulting, go into environmental, um, you know, kind of consulting firms or on their own, or, you know, a popular thing now to do as a business will have their own environmental person in-house. So they've taken those positions. And then we have another stream of people that have gone into conservation. Um, you know, into kind of conservation work. So they've worked for the Forest Service, the National Park Service, the conservancies, um, and all of that. And um, we do encourage, um, you know, kind of geography and different kinds of methodologies as well. So we do have people that go into more general, not environment specific, but related things having to do with, you know, sort of media communications, digital sciences, all of those sorts of things. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I do want to wrap up this particular conversation today with one final question that I'll invite each of you to use as the delivery of your 30-second parting thoughts, all right? And so that question is, what is one tip or best practice that you would share with community members, whether they are teachers, professors, parents, you name it, who are educating students on topics related to climate change, the environment, and sustainability? Julianne, I'll start with you for your 30-second parting thoughts, and then Jenny will finish with you. Get them outside. Um, you know, add some kind of experiential component to whatever sort of educational program um, that you are doing. And that can range anything from like activities. I have my students go out into the world and create uh, sustainability maps um, kind of as an activity, just as an example, but all the way up to doing internships or research projects that um, especially community based ones that will take them outside into communities where they're matching what they know with um, creating the solutions on the ground that we need. Thank you so much, Julianne. And Jenny? I guess for me, what I would say is to believe in learners. Our jobs as educators is to be their champions and um, to give them voice and choice in how they learn and when they learn and what they learn. Um, encourage, again, that curiosity and imagination. Offer them hope. Offer them examples, offer them opportunities. Uh, and, and when we can do that, uh, I think that we're going to help to develop some really creative um, problem solvers, change makers of, of tomorrow. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.